0: Hi, everyone. Today, we're taking you behind the scenes of the original Netflix film, Rustin, by hosting the fourth episode of the official Rustin podcast. In this episode, we'll hear from director George C. Wolfe about his process of taking a life and turning it into a film. And then we'll hear from star Coleman Domingo about what it took to portray Bayard Rustin and the significance of being a gay black man playing a gay black man on screen. You can check out more from the official Rustin podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Enjoy this special episode.
1: Bring to you the executive director of the March on Washington,
0: the man who organized this whole thing, Mr. Bayard Rustin.
1: The first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation, no compromise, and the right to vote. What do you say?
0: Hey there, beautiful people. Trayvell Anderson here, and welcome back to Rustin the Podcast, your personal companion to the film Rustin. So far, we've talked a lot about Bayard's look. We've talked about the women and young folks who actually made the March on Washington come to life. And now we're going to turn to Bayard himself with the two men at the center of telling his story in this film, director George C. Wolfe and actor Coleman Domingo. First up is my convo with George C. Wolfe, who is legendary for his stage and screen production. Born in Frankfort, Kentucky, he's won a few Tonys, an Obie Award, he's got a few NAACP Image Award and Emmy nominations, and he also served as the first Black artistic director of the Public Theater from 1993 until 2004. More recently, he's directed Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and the Broadway revival of Shuffle Along, or the making of the musical sensation of 1921 and All That Followed. Now, as a journalist deeply invested in the images of Black folks, queer folks, and Black queer folks in pop culture, when I think of the very few Black folks who've had a hand in documenting it, George C. Wolfe is at the top of that list. That's how iconic, really, he is in and of himself. We're talking to George about how he envisioned the world around Bayard and brought it
1: to life on screen. I love putting a man at the center of that who has an incredible degree of certainty and commitment and a sense of fearlessness in the middle of 12 different hurricanes and tornadoes swirling around him while he's planning the impossible.
0: We also get into the reasoning behind the character that has the girlies buzzing, young pastor Elias Taylor, and break down what the film's score has to say about the movement's different leaders. It's going to be good. George C. Wolf thanks so much for joining us on Rustin the Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So we've started out most of our conversations with folks we've been talking to, asking them, when was the first time you remember learning about Bayer Rustin and, and who he was?
1: Probably in college, I learned about him tangentially, but not specifically. And then I helped to create the Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta. And as part of my research of learning about, focused primarily on the civil rights movement in in Atlanta, I became informed as to who who he was and what he did and his relationship with Martin Luther King and, and what kind of organizer he was and how committed he was and how extraordinary he was. And so that started an obsession. And then Bruce Cohen called me and asked if I wanted to write and direct a film about Bayard Russell. And I was finishing up, I think, Ma Rainey at the time or in the middle of writing something else. So I didn't have the time to write it, but I eagerly got involved. And then shortly thereafter, Higher Ground got involved. And here we are today. And here we are. Now, you've described Byrd Rustin as
0: the ultimate American. What makes him the ultimate American to
1: you? I think he has the qualities that I think all Americans should, if not have, should strive to have. I think he has an expansive curiosity. If if you are curious, you go forward and you lean in and you want to learn. So curiosity, I think, is really crucial. There's also a sense you must be, be a responsible citizen, as I think he was. He was able to take on many issues. He protested the internment of the Japanese during World War II. He was placed in prison because he was a conscious objector. And from his teenage years in Westchester, Pennsylvania, which was segregated, he protested against any inequity that he came into contact with at a very early age. I think he got a lot of this from his grandmother, who was an activist. And then the other equation, I think, is helping those who are less fortunate. So I think those three things are what I think all Americans should strive to be. And that's what I think he lived his entire life committed in doing.
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned your work on Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Rustin both center these like black historical figures who also have an element of queerness to their identity, how they show up in the world. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your approach to rendering real life people on screen as like the complex, vivid portraits
1: that they should be. I don't quite know why, but I hate the word biopic. There's something about it that drives me insane. So, and I don't consider Ma Rainey's Black Bottom a biopic. And the same thing for Rustin, it's not, he was born in Westchester, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and his mother left him and he was, and, you know, it's fascinating for me and it's important for me as a person who's involved in being a responsible person in telling this story, to know all of that. But it's, it to me, it's about him. And it's about the specifics of him, but it's also about this incredibly fascinating time in American history and in American culture where tremendous swaths of the population felt this extraordinary sense of responsibility to alter the direction that the country was going. Mm-hmm.
0: hmm I actually like this idea of you kind of rejecting the, the paint-by-the-numbers, you know, sort of setup that that many biopics have. I'm wondering, though, with Rustin specifically, how did you go about deciding what information was most relevant to telling this very specific story about this time period? While also, you know, this is the first time we've had a movie of this scale about by Rustin. So also, you know, just incorporating some of those other tidbits about about his personal life into that journey.
1: One of the things that I think is really important about is this march was staged in eight weeks. And so there's pressure on that. There is also tremendous violence that is happening in the street. It was an organic evolution. So it wasn't like I was going, oh, well, let me break up the fact that, you, you know, that he was gay. The powers that be brought it up. Mm -hmm. and tried to slam it in his face and tried to use it and tried to weaponize his homosexuality. And for him, it was part of who he was. It was part of his identity. And that's what makes him a fascinating, unique character. And that's why the inclusion of Elias a character that was invented or a composite, if you will, of other people being Southern, being Black, being closeted, became a counterpoint because you saw what the norm was, and you did, were able to see how exceptional and unique Bayard was. The d- drama demanded certain story points evolve. I don't think I was sitting back as some uber storyteller lord go, oh, well, we'll include this or we'll cut that out. No. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like he was a star athlete. There was no place for that to come up, so it didn't come up, but he was. He was valedictorian Mm -hmm. of his high school class. That didn't come up. There was no weaponizing of it, but there was an attempt to weaponize his sexuality, and so it became Mm hmm.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Interestingly enough, Elias Taylor, the character that was invented I found a very liberating addition to it because mm. Ella Baker is Ella Baker. And 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 so you, you want to get that right. And you want to get Dr. Anna Arnold Anna Arnold Hedgman right. And Cleve Robinson was a real person. And Coretta was a real person. And Martin Luther King. So you wanted to find their language and their intelligence and their ferocity. But there were conversations that that Roy Wilkins had with Bayard and says, I can't support you because of your communist past, because of your homosexuality. So none of that's invented. That was mm-hmm. all a part of the landscape. And so since those weapons were going to be used at one point, I thought it'd be really interesting with the Elias character to show Bayard involved with someone, someone who was part of the South, who was part of the NAACP, who was part of the civil rights movement, and who was married. And so that therefore, when they brought it up, we didn't see his sexual identity exclusively from a demonizing place, but we saw him trying to work through and manifest a healthy version of that. I wasn't interested in saintly Bayard because that's not interesting because none of us are saintly. <laughs> I also wanted to explore with the idea that there was still this tiny little room, this tiny little space inside of him that was still ruled by shame. You didn't see it through most of his behavior, but all of a sudden in the scene where Adam Clayton Powell brings up Pasadena. Chief Dr. Hedgman, you ever get a word stuck in your head that you just can't shake? Now
2: what? While Biden and the Rustinettes were putting on their little review, the word I couldn't shake. Pasadena. Come on, you ever been? What has that got to do with anything? Come on, you
1: deputy director. Ever spent time in Pasadena? All of a sudden, this man who has a response and an answer to everything is rendered speechless so that the last act of him shedding all of his shame is him confronting his dear friend martin luther king and saying the line you either believe in freedom and justice for all or you do not on the day that i was born black
2: i was also born a homosexual they either believe in freedom and justice for all
1: or they do not that scene prior to going to washington dc was his own exorcism, if you will, of getting rid of any equation of shame so that by the time he went to D.C. to stage this march, he had gone through one of his final journeys. Now, that more than likely did not happen in real life, but I wanted to show a personal exorcism while a cultural and racial exorcism was also taking place.
0: Mm-hmm. hmm I'm glad you kind of gave us that breakdown of the Elias character because I think you're right that he represents this, you know, very real, very tangible other sort of experience of Black, you know, gay questioning people during this time period as opposed to the kind of comfort that Bayard held within himself but was also still processing around that shame bit that you just mentioned. So thank you for that. I'm wondering, how did your understanding of who Bayard was and what he did kind of change over the course of, of filming, if at all?
1: It didn't. I mean, I you know, it's, it's still evolving because, you know, when I find out that he was an offensive lineman at his high school and then when he would tackle an opponent, he'd help them to their feet and recite poetry. So I keep on discovering these wonderful, fascinating, or I learned that, The night before the march, and the government stepped in to repair it, and evidently they also installed a system so that in case anybody said anything too radical, they could shut it down. So facts keep on adding to it, and as I would work through the scenes with the actors in rehearsal process, you know, my understanding would deepen as I was engaged in the process of helping their understanding deepen, but... but I think I knew very specifically the story that I wanted to tell. And it is the story of, of this man who accomplished the astonishing and used a group of kids and trained them So that therefore they became activists and not activists in the way everybody's claiming activists today as a brand that they were, but in the activity and the ferocity of the commitment and devoting hour upon hours upon hours of organizing and organizing and then organizing some more. So that was very important for me. There was a speech that he had at one point. Where he told his, his team of kids, he says, every night I want you to go through the march from the beginning into end and think about every single detail and think about the chronology of what happens and make sure you haven't left anything out. And it was that precision and that sense of detail that he demanded of his team, that he demanded of himself. So that phenomenon of that, while wow, you're in theory beginning an affair with this new, young, handsome guy who's married, and that while J. Edgar Hoover is setting out to destroy you so that this march does not happen. And just the collision of all those dynamics, and at the same time, Roy Wilkins does not believe that this is the way that this fight should be fought. So I love putting a man at the center of that who has an incredible degree of certainty and commitment and a sense of fearlessness in the middle of... 12 different hurricanes and tornadoes swirling around him while he's planning the impossible.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm wondering, is there anything from your original vision of the film that ended up on the cutting room floor that you wish hadn't, that you wish was still present in the movie?
1: If it's on the cutting room floor, it's supposed to be on the cutting room floor. <laughs> If it's supposed to be in the movie, it's in the movie. No. At one point, A. Philip Randolph was supposed to read The March Demands. And at the last minute, he surprised Bayard and let him read them. We filmed it and he read The March Demands and then raised both fists and the audience cheered. And it was in there for a very long time. And then at one point I went, these are not his words. There is no poetry to what he's saying. You Mm. know, Coleman is doing it incredibly well, and the audience is cheering, as they should. But at one point, I was going, this isn't working for me. And in large part, because it wasn't Byers' words. And Byers' words, as they have been crafted in the film, were witty and smart and commanding and challenging and confrontational and joyful. And this was just a list. We demand this. We demand this. We demand this. What do you say? And the crowd roared. And then at one point, I felt this moment of liberation in which I went, it's got to go. It's got to go. Because it's not Bayern. It's him doing it, but it doesn't sound like him because he didn't write it. And then I just realized, oh, the final image of him helping to clean up. That's the poetry. That's the elegance. That's the eloquence of who he was. That's a stronger thing. And so it became about what do you need to eliminate?
0: I'd love to talk a little bit about the music that we hear in the film, the soundscape of the film. I know that you were very hands-on as part of that process. And there's a lot of like jazzy elements that are incorporated, noir elements that are incorporated to kind of help tell this story. Could you talk about what that journey and kind of that collaboration was like with Mr. Marsalis in executing
1: that? I wanted to embody New York sophistication, cutting-edge New York sophistication. All of the characters, particularly the men and women connected to the civil rights movement, are part of the intelligentsia. They're smart, they're educated, they're sophisticated, they use language dazzlingly brilliant. And to me, jazz was a perfect reflection of that. So so that was crucial, and also I wanted it— to grab an audience and take them and go, you know, as soon as you hear that beginning music, when it comes in, you instantly know you're in New York. Because in a very short amount of time, you have to see a friendship, you have to see plotting, and you have to see a betrayal. And so I wanted music to play a crucial part of that. And then once we get to DC, Then I wanted to explore a kind of symphonic energy. D.C. was a segregated city at that point in time. In many respects, what the March on Washington was about was all these people, black and white, taking over the city and making it theirs. So it's a journey from side streets to taking over the nation's capital.
0: Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. And music being a crucial part of that journey.
0: There's one scene in particular in which Bayard is doing his organizing thing and he's piecing different bits and pieces together.
2: In response to Powell's reckless accusations, I'll write a letter tending my resignation. When Martin rejects it, we will have forcing to see who wishes him well and who does not. What makes you so sure? Because I know Martin, sir.
0: The kind of improvisational element that jazz often has, I think, perfectly suits, you know, that scene in terms of just like how Coleman kind of embodied and carried out how Bayard might have have just been ideating and and piecing these things together as far as pulling off the march in eight weeks.
1: That bass is Brian's brain putting that thought together oh, oh, I did this with a fellow Randolph. and we did it, and we threatened, but we didn't do it because Truman surrendered. And then prior to that, FDR surrendered. And so what if we do this? And what if we do? And what if we took it into two days? And what if we take over the whole city? And blah, blah, blah. Then the brain is going and the music is articulating that brain. It's not just the finger popping equation. It's the mind. It's his mind and the minds of these extraordinary people. It also really illustrates the
0: the importance of the young people that were involved in pulling this off and the women that were involved in pulling this off. Why, from your vantage point, was it important to, to pull in Ella Baker and Dr. Hedgman and all these other characters who were also, you know, so pivotal to this movement?
1: Well, you just answered your question because they were so pivotal to the movement. So many of the organizers of of the movement in the South, you had male figureheads, but it was the women who were on the front lines. The entire race was caught up in the equation. I have a Jet magazine from 1954 which, strangely enough, has a lead article called How to Keep Your Wife from Falling for a Lesbian. I have no idea why that was the lead article, but it was. But in the middle of that, there has a society ball that took place in Washington, D.C. in 1954, and the winner of the hat contest was a woman who was wearing a hat in the shape of the Supreme Court building predicting that victory was going to happen for Brown versus Board of Education. It was in the culture. Someone sent me a picture from when I was in second grade, and I went to this very smart school in Franklin, Kentucky, and up on the bulletin board was a breakdown of what the rules were per state, what tests you had to pass in order to vote. The fight for civil rights permeated every single aspect of black culture. I was part of the generation that was being trained to invade white culture. Your whole being, your whole existence was focused in on altering the shape of America. So it felt more like America. You can't tell the story of the civil rights movement, but without including the young, without including the women, you can't. It's it wasn't an evolved understanding; it's an accurate understanding.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned earlier that like we're kind of living in this time period in which activism is part of people's brands in a way that just wasn't the case or the thinking, you know, back well, during this The stakes this time were so period. severe.
1: The stakes were so severe. Mm-hmm. People were getting killed for registering people to vote. Yeah. You know, so you had to have tactics and there was training and there was, you know, there was a whole there was a whole thought process about there was training that people had to go through in order to endure some of the hardships that they were going to encounter. So it had to be deeper. And I'm, I'm not yeah. I'm, and I'm not judging anybody, but but it, it it is the task after you declare yourself committed to the cause, then. Take a note from Bayard. How are you organizing? How are you putting it together? How are you forming coalitions? What is the next step after the next step after the next step after the next step? And and that's one of the things that I'm really excited and proud to share, to see a man whose brain did not stop, who Mm -hmm. even at the last minute is thinking about pamphlets, to hand to toll booths so that, therefore, when people driving, they know exactly where to go. That kind of unbelievable sense of detail is, is extraordinary, that when you are making anything, when you're making a film or when you're making a march, it's in the details. It's in the mm-hmm. details.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's what I was going to bring up. I think, you know, there are perhaps a lot of lessons that younger folks like myself who are engaged in what freedom work looks like today might be able to learn
1: one of the sections of the film that I find deeply moving is that after Strom Thurmond has in essence outed him on the radio, and he goes has a final confrontation with Martin Luther King before the march, he comes back to the office and the kids are just working because they've now crossed over to the other side. They are now a walking embodiment of an organizational machine unto themselves. And he's still needed, but he's no longer needed the way because he's passed on a tremendous amount of information. And hopefully the film can do that for some as well.
0: Absolutely. With that, George Seawolf, thanks so much for the film and thanks for giving us some of your time today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. That was Rustin director George Seawolf. Now, as a Black film expert, I really want to highlight George's point about the ability movies have to inspire generations to come. I remember watching the movie Camp as a teenager. In case you've never seen it, it's a cult classic about a group of kids in summer theater camp who bond together under a very cruel director. Now, I know this is not capital A activism, but I watched that movie and was really affected by seeing the power of queer community. It gave me a possibility model through which I could look for those types of community spaces, not particularly in theater, but just in my own life. So the idea that Rustin might do that for young people today and older people today, we love to see it. Now I want to turn to a conversation I had before the strikes with lead actor Coleman Domingo about his personal ties to Bayard Rustin and the experience of bringing those similarities to the big screen. I'd love to hear about your earliest memory of, of knowing about Bayard Rustin.
2: My earliest memory of Bayard Rustin, I think came very late in my life, which was maybe junior year in college. And I think he was still a footnote in some history book. Like he was just in the periphery. It was like Bayard Rustin, but you never gotten to his story. Cut to I'm out of college years later, and I'm in San Francisco as a, an actor. And there was a play, and they, they called me up to ask me to cover a wonderful actor named Dwayne Boutet because he couldn't do the last week of a show called Civil Sex, which was about Bayard Rustin. It was created by Brian Freeman, a fantastic Bay Area artist. And I was like, oh, Bayard Rustin. Hmm, let's come up again. And I've read the script I just sat back in my chair and I was just like, wait, what? Wait, so this openly gay man organized a march in Washington, inspired Dr. King with his passive resistance and teachings of Gandhi. And why don't I know this? I just felt like duped by my whole education. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know. And uh that became my really deep dive into Bay Rustin. I became fascinated with him. Just the idea that a man like him was so innovative and so free in himself, you know, singing Elizabethan love songs, being a a football player in school, and, you know, being such an incredible thinker and and journeyman. I just thought, I love this person. I think it sort of ignited something in me that said, oh, I can actually be a bit more forward in who I am in the world and really be my own person and, 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 and take up space and not, (laughs) <laughs> not I put myself in a box Bayard was such a man ahead of his time all that he was it's incredible especially if you look at the times <laughs> like there was no one mm-hmm. in his lane
0: mm-hmm. he created
2: his own lane mm. I love that okay so you
0: just said a lot that that has my mind you know going in 12 million different directions I want to first start with the the responsibility. Mm that you feel around this particular story, did that help you in any way in, in, yes. in terms of, of diving into this?
2: I think it did because I think that, as we know, um, our stories have been so marginalized and we are never usually in the center of a story. And I wanted to make sure I took on that responsibility in, in such a loving way. I knew to lead this, I had to bring my full self in every single way, in every department, and the energy that I'm putting out is about the task of telling Bayard's story. It's about being in service to. At this point in my career, this is my first leading role, and I've been working for what 32 years. And and my first leading role actually on uh, in film. And I thought, well, this is so meaningful, especially for a, a queer man to play another queer man. I know that seems unusual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know uh-huh. what I mean? We don't leave his sexuality out of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because I think a lot of stories, they would focus on his ideas and they would focus on his politics, et cetera. And then like the other part, the personal part, they would not be so comfortable with putting that in there. But I love that the fact that it's directed by George C. Wolfe you know, another queer man who just wanted to make sure that we're seen in all of our complexities, you know, and that he's not heroic at all, actually. I think that he's just a man doing what he can in the moment and doing what's in front of him. And Bayard had wild, shocking white hair and his sleeves were always rolled up, tie undone, messy, flirting with boys in the next room while he's still making the march happen. I mean, I mean, he was everything. <laughs> and he was a bit of—sometimes he, he was a bit messy, Mm -hmm. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. a little bit messy. But I appreciate that. (laughs) I love the fact that, you know, it makes him human. Mm -hmm. It makes him completely human. And for him to have frailties. But you couldn't deny his wit. You couldn't deny his intelligence. You couldn't deny his humanity and what he was trying to do. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: I want to stay right there on the sexuality tip because I have to say I was a little hesitant. Now, you know, I love George Seawolf and Dustin Lance Black and all of (laughs) y'all, but you know the the truth of of what we have seen as it relates to stories around our legends, right, who also happen to be queer people is oftentimes that the sexuality part is muted to say the yes. least. yeah, that is not the case at all in this particular movie. I'm wondering if that approach to Bayard's sexuality awakened anything or enlivened anything within you as, a, as an actor in terms of depicting this particular story and, and, and moment in our history?
2: You know what? That's a great question. The beautiful thing is there's a character that is in the film that is actually, I would say, a work of fiction, yet he's so very true. And that's the relationship with the young pastor. Elias Taylor. Looked like he was about to ask. I was about to ask something, but it wasn't that. It was important for the creatives to tell that story and also to make sure that the moment you just say that Bayard, you know, you look at his, who his former partner was or anything, you'll just think that, oh, he just liked the little white boys. But you like, no, 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 he liked black boys too, and he... <laughs>
0: mm-hmm
2: <laughs> The idea of being able to pl- have intimacy as a queer man and show that complexity Mm-hmm. It's so such a beautiful thing that I think I rarely get to play or I've rarely seen. Usually it's it's going down one road or the other. It's either like hypersexualized or <laughs> right, or it's muted. Mm-hmm. I think that we found this beautiful place that is actually a true representation of how we actually operate in the world. I love the Bayard is like he leads with his ideas and his thoughts, but he's not leaving his sexuality behind. That's also with me as well. I've been out my entire career. I walk in the room as a Black, queer man. But I think that that's just like, oh, these are just fragments of myself. And But I have many more ideas that I think are much more interesting than mm-hmm. just being Black or queer. And that's the reality of most of my my brothers and sisters. You know, we know that. And so I know that that's a beautiful thing to live in, a beautiful space to live in, because I rarely see it. Um I just wanted to make sure that Bayard was so full in his experience. And so when he recruits a man in the stalls after a meeting with the NAACP... Now, most people are modest, cautious, afraid. So say it. Whatever's on your mind is very second. No caution, no fear. I thought, yeah, that's what we... He can live in both places at, at all times. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. He goes high and low at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and I know... Everybody who lives like that. <laughs> Everybody. Listen, absolutely.
0: <laughs> Bayard had a look, right? You mentioned the hair, you know, the teeth stand out to me personally.
2: I'd like to believe that he was wearing it as a badge saying, that, no, this is what the ills of our humanity can do.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm going to wear it. And he didn't stop. And I love that, you know, George would get a kick out of it because sometimes they smile nice and wide. You know, cause I think that he didn't let that stop him. That again, it was another layer. He didn't let being black, being queer, you know, being, being a Quaker, but, you know, mm-hmm. his ideas, nothing stopped him. And he said, I'm going to have a grill that's a little messed up and I'm going to still pull boys and I'm going to still speak with authority and I'm still going to be the smartest person in the room. And period. that and, and, period. It, that, that was that was a full period right there. The <laughs> teeth was a period. The hair was a period. The, you know, his when he was lounging at home, he would always be wearing something from India and jewels and uh, draped um, uh, chains and things like that. And, you know, fabrics. His house, his home, his apartment was adorned with all this African sculptures and headdresses and things from his travels. He truly was his own creation. Mm.
0: I was going to ask, you know. Uh, Was any one or two of those, you know, character accoutrements, the hair, the teeth, you know, the clothes, was there one or two that, like, when you put it on, locked you into who he was?
2: Absolutely. First of all, I commend our hair and makeup department. They were excellent. I'm one of those actors that does a deep dive in terms of my physicality, the way his body moves, what he eats, I made sure that my body was moving through space in a different way, even with the costume as well. Every layer of it helped me with what I needed to do for Bayard in the times. Oddly enough, once I put on a crisp white shirt and rolled those sleeves up and had the tie undone, I started to feel closer to Bayard in a way because we had to be suited up in Mm -hmm. the 50s. And he was like, I'm here. I'm about doing the work. I don't care about appearances. I would put that tie and then I would undo it and roll up my sleeves. And I felt more like Bayard because he was absolutely a worker. He was a union man, he's of the people. But also once you know the teeth came in, the prosthetics, I had to work with the teeth for a while. And it did, it changed my face and it made me have this attribute that you felt like something that was impairing you, you had to push through it. So I had to train my mouth to do that. So I had something to overcome. You just want to make sure that it's done lovingly, you know, and nothing's too extreme.
0: So I should say, I'm a sucker for, you know, a biopic, uh, okay, uh, a historical drama, okay, anything with our people, you know, triumphant, it gets me, (laughs) it hits hits me in the feels, you know, I I can't help it. Um, So I've seen a lot of them, is my point in saying that. And something feels different about this rendering of this time period, a time period that we've seen so much on screen. I'm wondering, though, for you, was there a moment on set in which you were like, oh, we're doing it right?
2: There's a line that cc's Pounder says towards the end. She says, oh, when I was a young person.
0: Every night, my father would ask, have you made yourself useful today? And I'm certain that was the same for you. But child, today,
1: today!
2: And it was something I thought about every single day was just being in service every day. And I knew that I had to guide our entire cast and crew with the ideal every single day because I was in the center of it. And I trusted if we did that every day, we'd get something right. Mm-hmm. I, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you hope the film will be what you imagined it could be because you leave it to the edit, you leave it to the post-production and then you leave it to marketing, you leave it to the way Netflix would get it out there in the world. But you're like, I know the idea of what I needed to do. I know where my heart and my soul. Who? wow. I, I knew what I was, um. Oh, sorry. I don't... don't
0: apologize.
2: Wow. I, I'm sorry. It just hit me. It just came up, came back because I was in this space for a long time with this film. And I know that I, uh, I gave a little bit of my soul to it every day because I know it was necessary and not only for Bayard, but also for me, and also for George, uh, to tell our stories, because we know that they're not being told, and we have to do it. And I know, I know it's a responsibility. It's a responsibility for you. You're waiting. Like you said, you were waiting. And I have many other people waiting, and I don't want to let them down. I stayed in that space of a purpose, intense purpose, And I have the language. I have the cast. I have the crew. I have the director. And it was about making sure that we get out of our own way Mm -hmm. and be in service to not only Bayard, but also to all these unsung heroes, these young people, the Rachel Horowitz, the, you know, Ella Bakers. I wanted to make sure that, Hey, this is about, you know, the, the story of these women who don't Mm -hmm. get a microphone as well and Mm -hmm. these complex men. And navigating the systems. It's about all of us. And so I know that that was, um, my intention. So I could rest well every single night. I know that Rustin is for us in particular, part of your legacy, you know, what you do and the shoulders you stand on. So I think that's why I feel very emotional. I'm like, Oh yeah, we're doing this for us. Absolutely. And we, fi- and we finally get to be center stage and tell, tell our stories in this way. And so it's such a gift and a privilege, and I thank you.
0: And I thank you as well. Thank you so much. Sure. That was Coleman Domingo, who plays Bayard Rustin in Rustin. I think about the responsibility we sometimes shoulder when we set out to tell our ancestors' stories about how it is a privilege, really, like Coleman said, to be able to be part of the remembering of the stories of the Bayards of the world, right? Men, women, and people who deserve their flowers for the enduring impact they've had on so many. I'm sure I've said it before, but I will say it again. I am super excited for what this film will do for us all. And especially for those of us who are Black and queer. The official Rustin Podcast is a production of Netflix, Pineapple Street Studios, and Sleigh Jean. It's produced by Corey Antonio Rose, and our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. The podcast is mixed by Hannes Brown, with fact-checking by Dina Kleiner. Special thanks to Josh Gwynn. Gabrielle Lewis is the executive producer at Pineapple Street. From Netflix, our executive producer is David Markowitz. And then you have me, Travel Anderson, from Sleigh Jean, as executive producer and host.